Hello, and welcome back to All Swell, the student-led podcast of the Coastal Society and produced by the American Shoreline Podcast Network. This month, you're hearing from Eva and Kara from the Duke Student Chapter of the Coastal Society. Thanks for tuning in. We're very excited to be back at the mic to talk about an increasingly important topic in marine conservation, remote sensing technology. And to help us walk through this theme, we've got a very special guest with us here today. We're pleased to welcome Greg Larson, a PhD student in the Duke Marine Robotics and Remote Sensing Lab. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, with profound advancement in the past couple of decades, uh, technology is helping conservationists and resource managers collect new data, access new environments, and improve study methods. Uh, Greg here uses drones and satellites in his dissertation work, looking at pinniped behavior and habitat use in response to environmental changes. Today, we'll discuss this work, the robotics lab's work more generally, and the broader role of technology in coastal research and conservation. But before we dive into all of this, let's hear a brief word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Welcome back. Let's jump right in. Greg, could you start by telling us a bit more about your PhD work and how you got here? Sure thing. So as you just summarized, I characterize my PhD topic generally as uh, drone applications for pinniped ecology, conservation, and management. I mean, I don't work exclusively with just drones or seals, but those are the prevailing focus of my dissertation. And I got to this place as kind of a melding of my past experiences as a wildlife biologist and the opportunities that were available to me here at Duke Marine Lab working with Dave Johnson. Before I came to Duke, I spent a number of years working in various jobs in wildlife ecology, conservation and management. I worked for a project on guppy ecology and evolution in Trinidad. I worked with an iguana conservation program in the Cayman Islands, and I spent several summers studying uh, seals as a technician for NOAA uh, out in some remote islands in Alaska. So when I finally decided to go to graduate school, I started talking to Dave, and he had some really exciting opportunities with drone techniques and with the Palmer Long-Term Ecological Research Program, uh, or LTER if you're familiar with those, uh, down in Antarctica. So what we did was really uh, we built on my past experience, particularly working with seals with NOAA, and uh, we are leveraging these new opportunities with drone methods to explore the topics that I've picked for my dissertation. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. It surely sounds like you've had an awesome uh, go at your past experience. We'd also like to hear more about the other work done in your advisor, Dave Johnston's lab here at Duke. Uh, you're joined there by a few other PhD and master's students, correct? What do their projects look like? That is correct. Um, I think I'm one of three students, uh, PhD students right now, and every year we take a few master's students as they come through uh, the marine lab. And uh, I'd say we're really all over the place. And honestly, I think that Dave likes it that way. That's his vision for our lab is that we've got a finger in every pie. 
some of our lab works locally, studying processes here in North Carolina, while a few of us like me work in more remote field sites. Uh, most of us study coastal systems, but some of us focus more on terrestrial aspects, while a couple of our folks uh, look much farther offshore for their uh, interests. Uh, and especially when we're talking about our master's students in the lab, uh, we see a lot of diversity in the disciplines that our students explore. Um, some folks study regulations and best practices for drone methods. Some folks focus on the educational opportunities that come with this technology. And then some, of course, are using drone data to explore your stereotypical hypothesis-driven research questions. Thanks. That all sounds really interesting. And Kara and I are actually taking a course with Dave Johnston focusing on drones later this semester. So we're both looking forward to that. Uh, but shifting the conversation back to your research, why is it important to understand the dynamics of pinniped populations in these remote, very cold areas? And how will your research inform broader coastal conservation aims? This is great. This lets me uh, really be the seal advocate that I've always wanted to be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> seals are, um, although much maligned historically, um, we would you know, club them for their furs or uh, shoot them as competitors for the fishing industry. But they're really actually valuable to us as uh, what are called sentinel species. Uh, these are species that give us an indication of the ecosystem that they participate in. So seals are a top predator. So th the fluctuations that we see in their, uh, their range and their abundance tell us a lot about what's happening down the food chain. And uh, this is especially valuable for marine ecosystems because so much happens in the ocean in places that we can't access and we can't observe. But pinnipeds uh, and some, many other species, like especially seabirds, um, come back to, uh, they have what we call uh, philopatry, um, which is site fidelity. They come back to the same breeding sites year after year. Some of them also come back to molting sites when they have to um, grow in a new co coat of fur or new feathers. Um, and that predictability makes them incredibly valuable, valuable uh, because we can uh, anticipate where they're going to be and we can monitor them from year to year. So uh, as we see these changes, we can infer some changes are going on in the food chain. Uh, sometimes we don't even know what changes, but just knowing that changes are occurring is super valuable to us. So that is my pitch for why uh, we should appreciate seals in their ecosystem. Uh, and much of my work takes place in polar areas, but seals uh, occupy habitats all around the world. And so I would say that a lot of the techniques that I'm using uh, can be generalized to other sites and even other species, like I mentioned, uh, seabirds, uh, ways that we can use remote sensing to understand uh, these ecosystem changes from what we see in the predators. That's awesome. And I love that you're a SEAL advocate today. Um, also, our fellow Duke host, Nora, had mentioned that you've worked not only with SEALs and seabirds, like you just said, um, as a part of your own research, but you've also worked with whales and drones and remote sensing. Uh, can you tell us more about that experience? And you were stationed out in Antarctica for a while too, correct? That is correct. Um, yeah, I've spent a lot of time in Antarctica during my PhD. Uh, between 2016 and 2020, I spent three summers, uh, Antarctic summers, at Palmer Station on the Antarctic Peninsula. And each of those seasons was about three months long. So it added up to a lot of time and familiarity with that area. Um, this 
came as part of our lab's collaboration with the Palmer Long-Term Ecological Research Program. And we were brought in to help specifically with the whale research component of that program. So they're studying all different aspects of the ecosystem, particularly the marine uh, ecosystem of the West Antarctic Peninsula. And uh, they recently, within the last decade, uh, expanded that to include the recovering whale population. And there's an opportunity for our lab uh, being uh, experts, growing experts in uh, particular drone methods that can be used with whales. Um, there was interest in bringing us down there to um, incorporate that with the LTER. So when I was in Antarctica, my primary responsibility each season was actually to study the whales, not my passion, the seals. Uh, although I've really come to appreciate whales as well. Um, our day-to-day -day job was to sample whales at transit near Palmer Station. So I worked with a teammate each season, and each day, if the weather was safe, we would go out in a Zodiac, a little inflatable boat, and just cruise around the coastline near Palmer Station looking for whales. If we found a whale, then we would collect a bunch of data on it. Um, primarily, we collected tissue samples for um, genetics and uh, hormone analysis. We would photograph the fluke, that uh, the black and white pattern on the underside of its tail, and we would uh, incorporate that into a growing ID catalog so we could see which whales came back season after season, or sometimes we'd even get revisits within the same season. And then finally, the reason why I was down there, uh, if we had a cooperative whale, we would fly a drone over it and take photographs for what we call photogrammetry, measuring from photographs, and from that we could collect body measurements. So uh, that was my primary job when I was down there, and really all of my dissertation data happened during the downtime when we weren't looking for whales. That's fascinating. I, I was in a class last semester with Dave, and he showed us some footage from some of the Antarctic uh um, expeditions. And I just have to ask, kind of shifting away from your work a little bit, what is it like spending months at a time on expedition in such a harsh environment like Antarctica? It was fantastic. <laughs> I was actually given the option uh, to do similar work from a four-week research cruise instead of being based for three months at station. Uh, and that would have really let me see a lot more parts of Antarctica, particularly up and down the Antarctic Peninsula. But what I really loved about being stationed at Palmer Station was how you get to know that one place just so well, so intimately uh, as a member of that environment. Uh, you get to see seasonal processes unfold over the three months that I was there. Some people are there even longer. Uh, you see the ice melting seasonally. You also see the glaciers retreating year after year. Um, you get to see animals breeding and molting, seals and penguins. You see the vegetation green up as the snow melts. Uh, there is vegetation down there. A lot of people don't realize we have a lot of mosses and a couple species of grass. Um, and it's just harder to see that on a research cruise. Uh, it's a shorter amount of time and you get a lot of snapshots, but you're always on the move. So I think that staying at Palmer Station, I kind of sacrificed a breadth of experience I would have gotten on a ship for a depth of experience at that one location. And I really, uh, I loved it. <laughs> and I guess in addition to the environment, the, the natural aspect there, there's a really unique community at station, uh, contractors who keep the place running and support our science, and then a constant turnover of scientific projects coming and going. So uh, to get to be a member of that community was also a, a fantastic privilege that 
um, I'll always be grateful for. That's a lovely viewpoint on uh, what I'm sure was sometimes tough uh, living in the ice there, but I certainly learned something new because I did not think there were grasses down there. (laughs) Um, But you're also involved in Antarctic research for Duke's Bass Connections program. For our non-Duke listeners, this is a program of interdisciplinary research teams that tackle real-world problems. So Greg, how do drones and other remote sensing technology fit into this work? And what's their significance in tackling your team's research problem? That's a good question. (laughs) Our team is called Biogeographic Assessments of Antarctic Coastal Habitats. And we kind of arrived at this topic um, because in the course of my research, I collected a, a very large amount of remote sensing imagery in Antarctica. And we realized that we have kind of a new opportunity with these resources to understand the physical environment at a spatial scale that we haven't really seen or explored before. Um, Not a lot of people have really looked at that in the scientific literature. And this is taking place in the context of climate change, where we're seeing a lot of intense changes in that part of Antarctica. But uh, one of the things we realize is there isn't a lot of baseline data. we know that changes are taking place, but Antarctica can be a very difficult place to to observe those changes. Uh, the climate is only tolerable to people or to researchers for um, a few months of the year. A lot of the areas are just simply inaccessible because of ice or uh, other dangerous conditions. Uh, so we thought that we had an opportunity here to use remote sensing resources to kind of expand our idea of of the baseline. What does the environment look like now? So as it changes in the future, we can reference these baselines and actually understand uh, what the prior condition was, since we're lacking that in a lot of Antarctica. Uh, So drones and remote sensing really kind of expand our, uh, the spatial and temporal scope. So I'm talking about um, what times of year we're able to see uh, changes in Antarctica and the range over which we're able to see that. Because if you think about researchers down there, a lot of the research is located around very specific stations. And those stations were placed at sites that are intentionally very accessible to humans, that they're, they have, um, sometimes they're ice-free areas or they have very thin ice in the winter so ships can come in and supply resources to the station. Um, they're often sheltered from extreme weather. And those things make for... Um, yeah, high quality accessibility, but they really bias our um, our spatial scope to these uh, unusually human friendly areas. So when you're thinking about satellite imagery, uh, that that's collecting just enormous enormous landscapes of data in a single tile of uh, of an image from a satellite uh, that's capturing areas that it would be either unsafe or um, unwise to access. Sometimes unsafe for humans, sometimes unsafe for the animals that we might be disturbing. Drones are kind of an intermediate between your on-the-ground kind of limited observation and the large-scale satellite observation. Uh, We obviously can't fly drones in every condition, but they definitely help us open that window of observation a little larger. So our hope with this class is that we can kind of leverage these new technologies to expand that window of observation to... um, 
expand our understanding of the baseline of what the Antarctic ecosystem looks like at this moment in time, and hopefully provide a much more robust context for the changes that we see as the area continues to warm. That's really exciting. And I think that project is a great example of the resourcefulness this kind of technology provides for researchers and how it can really expand our horizons for our capacity to do research in these kinds of environments. Um, and when I say these kinds of environments, you know, specifically here, this project focuses on polar habitats in the face of climate change, which, as you said, have been less accessible. Uh, but other habitats, of course, as we all know, will change too. So I'm curious how you see this research translating to, say, studying some closer to home coastal environments in the face of changes like sea level rise and climate change. Well, a lot of my research does focus on polar areas, but a lot of the techniques that we explore actually uh, can be applied to a lot of different uh, habitats. I would say that polar areas are kind of a model ecosystem for studying certain things like climate change. Uh, particularly Antarctica has a relatively simple uh, food web compared to more temperate or tropical systems. I don't want to undersell the complexity, but uh, it kind of makes for a convenient model for understanding some of the feedback between physical environments and biological processes. But even if you were to uh, kind of expand the principles of that to a more complex area, like say the, the coastline of North Carolina, where we have the Gulf Stream, and um, I'd say many more marine species interacting in our coastal zone, uh, a lot of the techniques that we're looking at uh, in my research can be uh, applied to different habitats. Uh, one of the main things that we focus on, uh, particularly in this uh, Bass Connections course that I was talking about, is uh, coastal mapping. So in Antarctica, we're looking at areas where snowbanks are melting and glaciers are receding, where this is something that in remote sensing we would call land cover change. And in North Carolina, if you're if just going with that comparison, uh, we don't, of course, have glaciers receding, but you are seeing a similar advance of land cover change. We're seeing saltwater intrusion and ghost forests growing. Uh, we're seeing barrier islands moving about. And so a lot of the, the methods that we use uh, in, in the realm of spatial mapping and spatial ecology uh, are very directly applicable to um, most other ecosystems. Wow, Greg, this is all so fascinating and so exciting. And I am a huge history buff. So as you're talking, all I can think about is, wow, how did scientists perform this kind of research that you do in the past? Uh, so if you can speak to that, that would be awesome. And, you know, not only looking toward the past, but why do you think it's important to continue to use drones and this type of research moving forward? That's an interesting question, um, because there are certainly some ways that drones uh, improve on conventional methods and might replace some of them. But one of the things that uh, we really emphasize and like to explore in our lab is how drones complement past methods with new opportunities. So there are, there are certainly things like um, you can imagine in Antarctica counting penguins, uh, for example. This is something that we've actively discussed down there. Uh, we have a team that goes out on the ground and they count penguins in the colony. The penguins are not really phased by humans, so there's no disturbance factor there. Um, but the, while they're on the ground, they're also able to measure chicks and check for eggs and look at 
nest success and how well the animals are growing uh, each season to get an idea. As we discussed with sentinel species, you can get an idea of how the ecosystem is doing because of, by measuring these animals. But sometimes when the researchers get down there, the penguin team gets down there in the uh, Antarctic spring, and there's often still uh, fast ice. Um, this would, these would be sheets of ice that are um, connected to land, blocking in the ports. And the icebreaker ship can come in, and they can break through the ice and get to station, but the team can't get to all of their island penguin colonies because there's no safe way to transit across that ice. Drones would help us overcome that. Uh, so during these months that people can't do their on-the-ground research methods, uh, we could at least fly drones over and get a count of the nests, uh, what the population looks like, do a little bit of monitoring. Um, so that's a way that drones could complement the, the methods. We're drones are never going to be able to measure the chicks. Uh, well, I don't foresee drones being able to measure the chicks in the near future. Uh but they can uh, certainly help bracket um, on the, on these parts of the season that the uh, islands are inaccessible to humans. They can kind of, as we said before, expand that window of observation. But in a lot of ways, drones actually provide new data that we simply couldn't access before, um, sometimes because it was impossible without a drone, sometimes because it was extremely costly. So for an impossible example, um, one of the things I, I think I've mentioned our lab works on is a whale photogrammetry. So using photographs of whales to measure their bodily dimensions. And in the past, you could only really do that with dead whales, either ones that wash ashore or ones that were collected during whaling activities. Uh, you couldn't really measure a live animal um, and you certainly couldn't do it without uh, disturbing it uh, significantly. But with drones, we have an opportunity just by flying overhead to get a photograph, characterize some very important dimensions of the whale's body. And if you're doing it right, you can do it without disturbing the whale. So that's just a new opportunity that wasn't there without this technology. Similarly, a lot of my research depends on aerial perspectives, uh, things, uh, I guess, perspectives that give us uh, a rich spatial context. They let us study the whole landscape instead of you know, just what you can see on the ground. And uh, I work with seals that are much more easily disturbed than penguins. And so by flying drones, instead of walking around in their habitat, we can study the animals in their undisturbed state, which is really valuable if you're thinking about uh, aspects of their behavior. So uh, historically, that aerial perspective was available, but very rare at places like Palmer Station. Uh, folks have flown helicopters and airplanes down there, in the past, but as I'm sure you can imagine, it's incredibly expensive. Uh, by taking a drone down there, uh, we now have access to that kind of data on a regular basis. Uh, I can fly a drone multiple times a day even. And so that's just giving us this whole type of data that was previously possible but not available to us researchers because of a financial and logistical barrier. Right. It's really exciting hearing about all this new data that you get access to through drones. Uh, but I wanted to hone in on one thing you mentioned, and I'm glad you brought it up, and that is the cost. One concern with drone and other remote sensing technology is the expense involved in them. How do you think this can be made more accessible for communities looking to do restoration work or other work that may involve this remote sensing technology? This is an interesting question um, because 
I guess it depends on how you frame it. If you're talking about drones and satellite imagery compared to no data at all, it is expensive. Um, for drones, you're talking about a few hundred dollars for a, a hobbyist drone that can collect some data, or a few thousand dollars for a professional quality drone, or tens of thousand dollars if you're interested in something very advanced or experimental. Uh, but if you frame it as uh, the relative cost of getting that data compared to past conventional techniques, um, as I mentioned in Antarctica, uh, you could get aerial imagery, but it would require a helicopter or an airplane before we had drones. Uh, the cost is minuscule. Uh, if you think about the cost of either purchasing or renting uh, an occupied aircraft, the cost of the logistics to get that to your site, the cost of the fuel, the cost of the professional who has to drive, fly, <laughs> fly that aircraft. Um, and then the kind of non-monetary costs, uh, the risk of, to safety of putting a human in the air and often kind of remote and uh, unpredictable environments. Drones actually have a much, much cheaper cost for that aerial perspective than your conventional methods. But there is a good point that it does cost money, and that money, that monetary barrier, uh, is still inaccessible to many people, to many communities, and to many organizations that don't necessarily have the resources to acquire drones. Um, these days, in, in the remote sensing ecosystem, there are um, grants and discounts available to many groups. I have not been on that side of the acquisition. I've been very fortunate at Duke to be working with. Uh, resources that have been acquired by my PI. But uh, my understanding is that for educational groups, for uh, groups that don't have uh, kind of well-lined pockets, there are grants and discounts available for many of these providers, um, providers of drone platforms and providers of satellite imagery. Um, I'll also say that one of our lab's goals when we're working in, particularly in places with local communities uh, our lab is very interested in building local capacity because drones are relatively affordable compared to the alternatives. Uh, we look for opportunities to teach people uh, what's out there and how they might be able to leverage uh, resources that are within their budget to uh, start developing a remote sensing program or a, a kind of uh, aerial monitoring program. Um, whether that's for seals in Alaska or for coral reefs in North Carolina or mangroves in Belize, uh, we do our best to avoid that trap of um, what's known as parachute science, where the scientists drop in and then exit the situation when they've got their data. Uh, we try to build local capacity, and we really see drones as, as a tool for democratizing science, for getting uh, the, the equipment into local hands so people can kind of take charge of their local uh, research and monitoring. Greg, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective. It was very insightful, and I love that idea of democratizing science. Um, but let's go ahead and close things out with a really fun question. Y'all know I'm a dweeb and love the silly things. So I've got to ask, what is the most exciting or extraordinary or just plain weird thing you've ever seen or recorded via drone? Oof, I really want to say something about seals, but 
I have to go with whales in this situation. <laughs> when we were down in Antarctica, and, and I'm, I'm going to warn you, this is more of a weird thing than other options. <laughs> when we were in Antarctica, we saw some, for lack of a better phrase, a really messed up whale. Um, it was a calf and it was with its mother and it came through the waters near Palmer Station and it just looked really weird and gross. Uh, its skin had this kind of yellow crackling pattern all over it, kind of like a, an intense spider web or like shattered glass. And we had no idea what was going on. All we could tell was that it was a really gross and kind of, um, we assumed some, there was some kind of disease on the whale. Uh, and because we had our drone, of course, what we want to do is fly our drone over it and take a picture. So we did. Um, and it uh, was all over the whale, that pattern. And we um, kind of have this example of something. I think other whale biologists have seen it. Um, I'm not sure we know what it is. I don't remember if we got a um, tissue sample because it would be really interesting to characterize if it's a, uh, if it's a disease or a parasite or, or maybe just a, a weird natural skin condition like like akin to psoriasis or something in humans. Um, but anyway, we, we got to see this and we got to look at it really up close with our drone imagery, which was a, a neat opportunity. Again, one of these things that you just couldn't really do without drones. Otherwise, we would have seen it, maybe taken a photo from the boat, but it wouldn't have been quite the full picture that we got with the drone. Um, and then several weeks later, we saw it again. And... Um, I'm just going to give you the spoiler. We still don't know what it was, but what was really neat about this situation was again, we were able to get the drone overhead. It was a calf with its mother. So maybe this is something that I outgrows. Maybe this is like really weird, bad whale acne. I couldn't tell you, but um, because we were able to get the drone over it, we were able to get another kind of full body picture of this weird skin condition on the whale. And we were able to confirm that it was actually a separate whale. Um, well, separate whale, an individual whale, um, because we were able to see the pattern and we were able to see the mother that it was associated with because we had this drone imagery, this, uh, this more complete picture uh, from above, uh, we were able to characterize this condition on two different whales. And I don't know if this is ever gonna be a research note or if this is just gonna go down in the logs as that cool thing I saw that year. But um, I just thought it was really fascinating and um, kind of extra unique because we had all that extra context. We could tell that it was two different animals. We could tell that they were calves that were with their mothers. Uh, we could, um, we could uh, hopefully someone will take a look at the photogrammetry and they might be able to tell from the body condition if these whales are sickly or if they're actually doing just fine and they have an ugly skin condition. Um, so... I, I'm, I should actually follow up with my colleagues to see if anybody's done anything with this. But um, that's one of the cool things that kind of sticks in my memory, just this really unique, bizarre thing that we saw on a couple of whales. Well, Greg, I'm a big whale nerd, so I would love to hear more about that if you ever do find out what that was. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and learning more about the important work you're doing. Awesome. Thank you so much, Greg. And thank you to all of you, our listeners, and to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and the Coastal Society for supporting the show. Don't forget to tune in next month to hear from our co-hosts at East Carolina University. And remember, where there's a will, there's a wave.